Welcome to Red and Yellow, the podcast about all things to do with refereeing at grassroots level, looking at the laws of football, speaking to guests and trying to help you become a better referee with Adam Humphreys and me, Ed Connell. Hello, loyal listeners. It's Adam here and I just wanted to get in early on this episode of Red or Yellow to remind you to please, please, please send in your questions about refereeing or anything you feel like you might need help with in terms of your game. That's why we are here, to help you improve to be a better referee. We really enjoy getting questions from our listeners as voice notes via email or DM or on social media. Being able to help you is why we created this podcast and to offer our insights and to be able to help you by drawing on our experience. Added to that, if you are a very fit listener, then please don't forget to follow us on all the social medias. It's at Red or Yellow Pod. As well as remember to like and subscribe in your podcast feed. Thank you so much for being here. And let's get on with the show. Well, hello, Edward. Good evening, Adam. How are you? I'm I'm well, actually, yeah. I thought I'd actually uh, be a little more exhausted, a little more sore because I had my first preseason game yesterday, but actually I feel okay. How did it go? Uh, It was all right. I had to travel for about six hours um, there and back together. So it was about a three-hour journey there and about two and a half back. So five and a half hours. Do you get compensated for your travel time or cost? I get get like a standard fee for traveling and that fee covers more than enough. So that's that's grand. But it's always going to be hard. I've said to Football Queensland, like now I'm in Toowoomba, like because the football in Toowoomba, from what I've heard, there's only one FQPL one team here, and then there's not much else, and then it's most of the the other is like FQPL four, five and six. And I last year I was mainly refereeing on FQPL one, two and three, um, and this year I'm hoping I might get a bite of the cherry at some NPL and mainly FQPL one two. Um, so I'm going to have to be traveling a lot. So I said to FQPL, look, don't, if my traveling into Brisbane and down to the Gold Coast for those kinds of games gets in the way, like if it costs too much or whatever, just let me know and we can come up with an arrangement because I don't want it to be to the detriment of what I can referee. Um, so hopefully that'll be okay. Uh, and how did it feel fitness-wise, having had a bit of a break? Uh, yeah, no, it felt okay, actually. I mean, look, it's it's not a realistic situation because it was like 33 34 degrees um so you're always going to manage yourself and i had two two really good assistants yesterday a guy called alex who um was the first referee in australia i kind of ever came across and worked with so that's nice he's a lovely guy and a guy called connor who's from tasmania but lives up here now and and he did they both did a fantastic job for me um and so i i was like look i'm gonna manage myself i'm not gonna press as much i'm not gonna get to the corners as much especially if it's in your side like i'm gonna let you manage things and i knew i could trust both of them to do that and um yeah so so that was all right so i did that and and it worked out absolutely fine so especially the first half the heat it just zaps you so much because you've got so much sun cream on as well and then like you can't really sweat to cool yourself down too much. And, and it, the heat kind of gets trapped in your face a little bit because of the sun cream, um, because you're kind of, you're getting hot on the inside and it's kind of stopping. It's just, you just, your skin can't breathe quite as much. So, so look, I did 3.78K at an 11.20 pace in the first half and 3.77K at a 12.10 pace in the second half. 
And equal to that, you know, the football dictates what you have to do. And and it wasn't, it was only pre-season, so it wasn't exactly a competitive, like, pumping the ball left, right and centre sort of game. Um, yeah, but I forgot how difficult pre-season games are to manage. Um, they're not easy affairs. It's difficult. Uh, but no, we got through it. Actually, it turned out to be a pretty decent, all right game. Yeah. How, what do you mean by difficult? Well, your authority with discipline is a little diminished for a couple of reasons. One, I mean, yellow cards do count in preseason, which I found out at halftime yesterday. But um, first of all, uh, like after you brandished eight of them in the first, <laughs> I've sent eight players off. Um, well, you know, like the, the problem. The problem you have in preseason is if you used to adopt a proper at like a proper referee's attitude to the fouls and to what was going on. If you were to punish like you would in the middle of a season, um, you're going to get a lot of dissent because everyone's going to be like, it's pre-season, what are you doing? Stop spoiling the game. And that's going to, and that's going to be a lot harder to manage than you just kind of letting people know that you're not going to stand for it, like the fouls. You call them up on the fouls, you have firm words with them, but then you don't always follow up with, with the discipline that's required. Unless, obviously, if a punch gets thrown, if somebody jumps, if, like, there's certain, like, I have a different standard. Like, you know, the, the footballing fouls, I'm, I'm going to be okay with. But if something serious happens, I'm going to deal with it seriously. And if I get too many infringements from one player, I'm obviously going to deal with that. Or my other strategy is to just walk him over to the benches and go, look, just get him off because he's going to go in a minute. Um, And and they have unlimited subs, so that's not a problem either. Um, So it's always difficult judging that. And the first 20 minutes yesterday was not, was difficult because it was all of their first games as well. Um, So they're rusty. I'm a little bit rusty. The fouls were racking up a touch and, and I was trying to manage it as best I could and keep working with the players. And then, you know, they were getting hot and bothered and they were frustrated they weren't playing as well as they should be. And then once they figured out how I was approaching the game and once they figured out their touches again and, and how they were operating as a team again, everything settled down. So, you know, there was a good... And then they all got tired. So then the last sort of five, 10 minutes was a little bit more chaotic again. Um, but generally, the majority of the game was fine and it was absolutely fine, yeah. They're just they're just you, difficult affairs. Do you get um, marked in pre-season games by the, the teams or get feedback or anything like that? No? I, I think you get feedback. I mean, um, the referee's secretary for... Uh, the Gold Coast was there, um, a wonderful, wonderful human called Maria. And she, um, yeah, she'll keep an eye on it and stuff. But she's always, she's she's one of those people who is so supportive of referees. Um, and she can be really honest with you, but she'll always be honest with empathy. Um, and she's wonderfully wonderfully supportive. And so, you know, you know, you'd have to, you'd have to go a long way to her off she gets more annoyed with you if you mess up your availability than if you mess up on the pitch um so look i mean they're, they're, they're kind of there if you um as all referee secretaries do by the way if you deal with a referee secretary make sure your availability is perfect because it is the most annoying thing in the world for them um and yeah so you know fine as long as there's no glaring issues and i think that's part of the reason because it was an npl team versus an fqpl1 team so there's a bit of a talent gap anyway and um and so they obviously needed someone who could manage that situation, first game and everything else at that level. Um, so hence they shipped me in for it. And uh, yeah, so she was always going to be supportive of it. And yeah, as long as you've not cocked up massively, you're going to be fine generally. Yeah. 
So we normally start with any news that has happened in the sort of week between our last recording this one. The only, the only bit of news that I'd made notes about was one that I retweeted from our Twitter account. <clears throat> I did that earlier today, UK time. It's Saturday night, um, UK yes. today. Um, and that was that the, um, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, um, Bups Singil became the first Sikh Punjabi to serve as assistant referee in a Premier League match this week. And I know that we've, talked about this before and about the problems in terms of representation amongst the refereeing community and amongst the sort of upper echelons of football um, management as well but I mean it's still quite shocking isn't it that here we are in 2022 uh, this is a thing um, but anyway it's we should welcome it's um it's 2023 Ed oh it's 2023 it is, indeed it is. 2023. are you gonna get are you gonna get on the schedule <laughs> But um, you know, I still find it somewhat remarkable that, you know, this is the first time that we've had uh, some from the peak seat Pajabi community, you know, being involved in a Premier League game. But um, I remember I remember being quite shocked. I think it was, uh, I might be wrong on this, and if I am, I do apologise. But I think it was Michael Chopra, the old Newcastle forward, who was like the first Indian player or the first player from Indian descent to play in the Premier League. And when you look at the Premier League or when you look at football in general, there's, I mean, like people from that part of the world, they adore football. They love it, but they don't, they just don't often, I don't know why, they just don't seem to translate up much. Um, so that's a fantastic achievement and uh, much congratulations to him. Yeah, I hope he enjoyed his his experience. I hope he did a good job too. Um, it's really good. So we've, we've, yeah, that's great. That's really awesome. The only other thing of that's newsworthy really is just how well things have been going for us on social media. Ah, oh, um, oh, I like my reels. No, they've been going really well. What did we get in the finish? Like 22,000 views on the one about Messi? Yeah, I mean, it was it was just kind of mad, really. Um, it was, I think it was over 22,000 views on the, on the reels and similarly very high figures on the other... Social Platforms. media, as yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, no, excellent. Which means that you know our podcast is reaching more and more people. We're getting more and more messages each week from people saying they've sort of come across us or discovered us or been told about us, which is really, really lovely. Um, and you know, part of the reason why we do the social media stuff, or primarily you do the social media stuff, is to sort of help spread the message about the podcast to try and get us some more listeners because uh, that's ultimately what we're trying to achieve more listeners but yeah no really really yeah. really satisfying and um, to be fair our our like listenership and stuff is is pretty decent like it's it's, it's more than decent it's phenomenal we're up to 1.9 thousand plays which is awesome 146 plays per episode and our audience share is pretty good over the last seven days it's about 100 yeah. people. So, like, considering we're only on 10 episodes, I think that's great. And it's quite yeah. niche. But every day we're getting messages from people that is um that are like, oh, we had somebody binge listen. That's amazing. Someone's well, actually that, that's, binging to our voices. I was, I'm going to come you believe that? that a second when we come to our post bag because um, that person who did binge listen to us um, is the first question we're going to deal with in our post bag this week. So, Excellent. Oh, that's a good segue. Um, I also think he might be the very first binge listener of the podcast that we're aware of anyway. Um, but if you haven't got any other news then, well, should we turn to the post bag? Let's. Should and we let's get a Postman turn... Pat theme tune? Postman <laughs> Pat, Postman, or Postman Ed. <laughs> anyway, post bag. <laughs> 
So, anyway. um, <laughs> this is from Aaron Kelly, who messages on Instagram. Um, Do you say they, Aaron? Yeah, Aaron. Isn't it Aaron? Aaron. Aaron. I think I've always thought the way he spells his name is Aaron, but it might be Aaron. He'll correct us. I, I think it's a personal preference. I don't think there's it a is. correct way of saying it. Anyway, um, he messages on Instagram and said that he'd come across our podcast. He is a lorry driver who, having discovered us, said he binge listened to all nine episodes in one shift. I think that's, that's worthy of a round of applause. That Bravo. is very, Bravo. very impressive. And we're very grateful to him as a listener. Um, but he wrote in because he was saying in his message to us that he qualified initially as a referee when he was 15. And in December, um, he'd gone back and done the course again, re-qualified, because he'd been away from the game for a while. And this is what he says. He says, I qualified when I was 15 back in 2005. But after a few hard games and threatened with acts of violence from parents after making a few calls of the game, this absolutely petrified me and I stopped refing altogether. Completely knocked my confidence uh, in all aspects, not just football. Now at 32, I've decided to give it another go after giving up playing. Uh, my love for the game is still there, so I want to be involved still. So my question to you both is this. With the struggle to get referees, what do you think can be put in place for young referees to feel safe? I know from first-hand abuse, um, still 17 years later from my instant, uh, it still happens towards younger referees as well as adults. Um, so, well, this is obviously a very topical um Subject for us, we've talked about this a lot. I've told my story about how I stopped refereeing youth football for precisely the same experiences that um, Aaron's talked about, um, a real problem. Um, and before I ask you your views on it, I'll just go to, I don't know whether you, I don't, you wouldn't have received this, Adam, this week, but I'm assuming I received this email from the FA because I'm a registered uh, referee in the UK, but there was a, a, a UEFA survey of referees that went out to via the FA this week and one of the topics they were asking about was about youth football and um, let me just read out what the question was it says um, what could help to retain um, young referees and they gave a list of things and they asked you to select a maximum of three but the list they came up with were um, better training at uh, lower levels uh, better mentoring Creating a safe environment, more respect, clubs to show referees uh, are important, clear objectives to move up the career ladder, uh, reward and appreciation, provide training for referees and build a community, and then other. Um, so it's obviously something which the FA are alive to. Um, and we'll maybe come back in a minute to how you might have answered that. But what are your thoughts on what we can do to try and make refereeing a better and safer environment for, for young referees coming to the game? The first thing I want to say about Aaron's um, question is how that incident on the football field affected the rest of his life. And that's just not good enough. Like if you're a coach or a player listening to this, like you have to remember that your actions have severe consequences with people. And those consequences of, uh, can be so much more far-reaching than just the 90 minutes on the pitch. And the fact that, I don't know what happened to Aaron, I don't know what the, the full details of the incident were, but the fact that that affected his confidence, like he's, in his words, he said in all areas of his life, didn't he? Yeah. <clears throat> just isn't good enough. Like, <clears throat> you have a responsibility to humanity. You have a responsibility to other people. 
above and beyond your responsibility as a football player, as a football manager, as a parent of a player, whatever. Like, that's a human being. And the abuse he suffered affected his life for nearly 15, 15 or so years. That's a disgrace. That's an absolute disgrace. And whoever that person was, they're probably never going to listen to my voice. But you need to take a long, hard look at yourself and actually think. And, and anyone who feels like they might have overstepped the mark on the football pitch. And next time they go onto the football pitch and they see a kid um, and they think threatening that child is, you know, is worthy or threatening that child's family is worthy of, the, of behavior akin to the sport of football, then you don't belong in football. And the sooner you get out of the sport of football, the better, because I don't, he, want, you, I don't want you in the he, sport. And I don't think anyone does to be quite frank. Even if the, people involved in engaging this sort of behaviour don't really care about the impact it has on some referee's personal life. At the very least, I should think about the impact it has on football and refereeing generally, because, I mean, you know, as I said to you, that experience that I had, um, you know, it didn't traumatise me and I didn't come away from it, you know, suffering as a consequence, but I just took an immediate decision that I wasn't going to referee in more youth games. So that's that's just another referee you know, dropping out the system. And I've shared my experience with lots of other referees. So everybody gets to hear about it and it impacts on other people's decisions as well. And so, you know, they should appreciate that having an impact upon, you know, how football can operate. You know, in some ways, I don't think they care about that. And the reason is similar to the strikes that are going on in the NHS and, and across England at the moment, in that people don't think about that bigger picture in the moment ever. They only realize there's a problem when the problem actually starts to affect them. And they will only they will only respond to that problem when they can't get what they want. So they're only going to be aware of these problems when they actually can't get a referee, when their games yeah, get exactly. cancelled, when their leagues get cancelled, okay? And then really, at the end of the day, they're the ones to blame for that. The referees aren't to blame. They think they they clearly think referees are some kind of super... You know, um, you know the goals in motion podcast that I did I should probably give that a little plug I forgot about that on the news so I was interviewed on another podcast called Goals in Motion and we were just talking about refereeing the host he's taken up refereeing again and he was asking me about abuse and stuff and I said you know it's similar to like a teacher he's like what can you do and I'm always like humanize 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 you have to humanize yourself in front of these people as much as you can because by doing that you you make them realize you're not this robot you're not this this you know big old like flawless human and I, I said to him do you remember like when you was in Sainsbury's or Tesco's or whatever one day when you was a kid he was probably about 12 or 13 years old or maybe a bit younger and you was walking through the grocery store and you suddenly saw your school teacher and you're like what's my school teacher doing like wait my school teacher's a normal human being what that's not possible like what? No, that's my school teacher. That's Mrs. Woods. She does, she doesn't exist outside of my classroom. And it's like that, you know, we're people with real lives who have real jobs, who have real families. And I just don't, and you know, it's that it's, we're not the school teacher that doesn't exist outside of the football pitch and everyone needs to, to step up and have a better responsibility for that. More, I, 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 on, I think this is a, a, a real <clears throat> fundamental problem though. I think it's a fundamental problem within football itself it's not it's not just about refereeing it's endemic in the whole game about this whole problem about respect within the game of football yeah. and the, the, unfortunately until that gets addressed so that fans behave better so that parents watching the game behave better it's just not going to change and that i'm afraid can only come about with 
pretty much zero tolerance and you know severe sanctions if if people don't uh, comply because otherwise you know you're not going to get kids wanting to referee the kids who take up refereeing are not going to want to continue refereeing afterwards um and you know so we've got to create a situation where people can expect to go and referee a game um, and not be the subject of abuse from members of the team, from members of the coaching staff, from fans who are watching. It should just be totally unacceptable. At um, least, but to, sorry, uh, what I was going to say is at least, um, at least in at least with managers and players, there are steps you can take so that they do get some form of sanction. And and you you therefore have an element of control over that situation. You still shouldn't um, you still shouldn't be subject to it, of course. But at least you can do something to let them know that's not okay. Now the the other issue, especially in youth football, is obviously the parents and the yeah. brothers and the uncles and the you know all of those people, all all of which I've had trouble with in my time. You know, I've had to send fan like I have stopped games before and told parents to just get lost like i'm like go away i don't want you on the side of this field this game isn't continuing for as long as you're stood there because you have no right to say that to the players on this pitch and you have no right to say that to me and like i'm a very big tall lanky strong fellow who can do that not everyone has a confidence to, to tell a fan to bugger off and i'm not going to carry on with the game until they do um but well, that's how if you're i manage those situations. 15 years well, of exactly age right. or 16 17 years of age exactly right i mean I think the best the best experience I ever had with youth football was when I went to St George's Park and um and uh, refereed there. And the reason that was the best experience is because there was no parents, and yeah. it was just the clubs and and all the, the and literally like the clubs go if if you're if you get involved with your child at all, you're done. Like your child will not play for Liverpool anymore, and and that that's a bigger sanction than than ever. And so they push them all back. They're not even allowed to stand. They're not allowed to stand pitch side. They have to stand like a long way away to watch their kids play. And I think maybe like the best solution to that degree, because youth referees generally start on youth football. You're not going to get a 15-year-old doing open age football. So for as long as you've got, a, if, you, if the referee is under 18 years of age, I think probably the best solution would be parents aren't allowed to stand and watch a game. Now, I know parents would say, that's not good enough. Um, we pay the club, we pay the fees and everything else. But guess what? The sport ain't about you. The sport's about your child who's playing, who's trying to learn and develop. Your child can't learn and develop and play um, if the game isn't taking place to begin with and if they're in a cauldron of abuse. Um, that's teaching your child the wrong lessons. And I know it. I know the argument. It will be the, the few spoiling it for the many, but yeah. the few is affecting people's lives too much and therefore something must be done about it that would be my policy a blanket forget the respect line forget everything else you just blanket say if the referee is under 18 years of age parents they are not allowed to be fans at that game you drop your kid off you walk him over to the club the, the parent goes away and that's it um, but i mean because the, the game i did the, the parents who are you know, it's the parents the, the way they were were stood ironically behind the respect barriers, which have been introduced yep. to try and remind parents who are standing watching the game about how they should conduct themselves. But it had no impact upon them at all. So mm. it, that that's not working. Um, mm. And I think in my response to the survey, I think I I think I ticked. Um, I think I only ticked two of the boxes. I create one was creating a safe environment because any situation where people are being abused verbally or physically yeah. or threatened with either of them 
is not a safe environment. And then secondly, more respect. I mean, that seems to be those are the the two most fundamental things in that list of, in the survey. But it is interesting but, because yeah. obviously UEFA yeah. must be concerned about this to be asking these questions. But also I create a safe environment. Like how? Like what's the practical steps behind that? Do you know what well, I mean? Taking, like, take, taking away the parents is the, is yeah, the practical yeah, step. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But will they come to that conclusion? We know that, you know that, but creating a safe environment, like you could, like it's, that's, it's, it's such a broad topic. They could come out with something very minuscule and be like, well, that's to create a safe environment. Um, or they, I reckon what they'll do is they'll be like, there has to be a referee liaison officer at every game. That's creating a safe environment. But that's not like it's it's a safe environment from words is what we need. We don't need a safe environment so much from physical threats. It's from the words that are thrown at us. And that's the problem. And it's that understanding that abuse can be verbal, very much so. And that generally comes from the fan base, not necessarily from players and, and managers. Um, and then the other one was the other one, create more respect. I mean, it, again, how do you do that? How do you go about doing that? Like well, that, I mean, that, that's that's education. Yeah. I mean, that that, that yeah. is, I'm afraid to say, the FA need to come out with a very firm stance along the lines of the other problem with referee numbers. You know, if we don't get young people coming into referee, they don't turn into adult referees. Uh, unless we can have an environment where people can be a referee without fear of getting abused, whatever, then it's going to be a massive problem for the game. So they've got to start instilling people that it's not appropriate to just, you know, think you can abuse the referee. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Ed, is that a peloton I see behind you? Um, yes, it is a peloton behind me. <laughs> you, you keep him fit, are you? That's a new... Yeah. I haven't seen that before. When did you get that? It's been, it's been here all the time. No, it hasn't. Been, it has. You go oh. back and look at some of the other video footage. It's just we I mean, normally don't have the big light on in this room. Ah, is and that I normally, what it is? I normally just have the ring light, but this I, evening I, I put the big light on. I think the big light is improving your complexion. I think that was a good move. I'm a big fan of the Peloton. Um, I bought good. mine in lockdown when yeah, right. the gyms were shut. Lots of people did. Um, yeah. I'm not a big fan of their TV commercials. Yeah, I'm not, it doesn't bother me about the commercials. <laughs> <laughs> that was like two Christmases ago, wasn't it, that commercial? <laughs> uh, right. This this so, episode is brought to you by a Peloton. Um, hopefully, we'll get five grand if, for that. Well, if they <laughs> if they want to start sending me free products, we very what very about happy. me? I need to keep fit. Okay. Um, yeah, what you can't say. What's got my Peloton weights behind me as well, stacked up on my. Ooh. I'll have to write your training plan. Oh, that's something I was going to say. I'm going to sit down on my blog. You know my blog on my website where I yeah. write lots of stuff. I'm going to sit down and write a, uh, a referee's workout, pre-season and in-season. So uh, give me about three months and I'll get that up. I'll keep you posted. Cool. What's Excellent. next? Um, so we're going to now deal with the question that was sent in by Scott Lewa, who um, you'll remember last week I said about how Scott had sent us a um, question and I said I was struggling to pronounce his name, which I in fact got right. And I was telling everybody how he was giving us our first five-star review. But as I've been explaining to you before we came on air, um, the reason why his question didn't get featured in last week's podcast is when I send my script and notes from my iPhone, because actually, Adam, the difference between you and I is... <laughs> I, both, I knew that was coming. I, I both read the laws and actually prepare and I make notes. Whereas the first but, question you normally ask before you press the record button is, what law is it this week we're looking at? <laughs> excuse me, Ed. But anyway. <laughs> excuse me, Ed. What I bring to this is 
I moisturised and I put on makeup before we did this episode. So, should... Which, to be fair, is impressive. It's, what, 6.30 in the morning over there? <laughs> it is 6.30 in the morning. I like to look my best. <laughs> if I don't look my best, I don't feel my best. But as I've discovered, when I send it from my phone to my iPad so that I can have it on my big screen next to me, um, half the graphics don't turn up. So I screenshotted Scott's question, and then I obviously asked a different question completely and attributed to him. But he was very forgiving in his um, message. Response. But he said... You forgot to mention my question. So <laughs> we're going we're, we're to deal with Scott's question. It's a good question. Um, too. It is a good question. Um, he says it's, and it was relevant to last week's law as well, which uh, is what why you know. sent hey, it in. Yeah. But there we go. Uh, which is, you, we all remember, with in and out of play. So his question was this. Um, he says, I have a question for you, or maybe it's more of a discussion uh, topic as it relates to law number nine. Um, and I love this question. How much leeway do you give the players on throw-ins in terms of distance from where the ball went out of play? I think the laws of the game say, you know, give or take a metre, but we are often watching up to 10 metres in the um, premiership. I tend to give more leeway in the middle third and far less leeway as I get deeper in each end. For example, if the ball goes out close to the flag on either end for a tackle defence, I tend to make them stay pretty close. I don't let attackers get better angles by coming back towards the middle and I don't let defenders who are pinned deep come higher up on the pitch. Um so really, really good question. A very mm. practical question as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think for my part, I think he's spot on with the way in which he is conducting himself on the pitch. Um, <laughs> well done, Scott. You got a tick from well there. Well done, Scott. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be very pleased. Very pleased with the level seven, level seven referees uh, approval. <laughs> approval. <laughs> Um, but I think, I mean, I, I agree with him. When you watch the Premiership game, or you watch top level games. Yeah. I find it really frustrating that that referees aren't very strict on this. Although I do think right. they practice a similar approach that Scott's practicing. Uh, in the middle of the pitch, mm. it's it's you know you you will occasionally tell people if they're repeatedly you know taking the mick and going too far, but um, you'll give a bit of leeway because you don't be stopping the game all the time just for that. Mm. And yes, they, I think the referees are stricter when it comes to you know winning the final third of play. Um, do you do any differently? Uh, well, not really. I mean, it that makes common. That's just common, not common sense, because you know, um, I don't want to insult anyone who didn't think of that before. But it makes sense in terms of the game. You know, if it's a defensive throw down in the defensive end, they can probably come out a little bit more. And you know, the closer you get to the attack in third, you have to be a bit stricter. But really, I think the issue in terms of the Premier League and and, and like how precise they can be with that comes down to what you do when the throw occurs. So what I always do is I will tell every throw or I will tell my assistants to tell every throw in taker exactly where they're taking it from. Like, so if the ball goes out, I'm like, I want it at the, like yesterday I had a lamppost and I have, I always like use sponsors or whatever. And I'm like, I want it at the Adidas sign. I want it at the Adidas sign. And then if I've said that loud enough and they, take 10 meters i'll blow my whistle tell them to get it back they've heard i've told them where to take it in the premier league when you're in stadiums of 60 70 80 000 people it's much more difficult to vocally control the players because you're just getting drowned out all the time you've got to be a lot closer to them in order for that to happen and the other thing i'd say as well in the premier league is teams and players and coaches are probably less concerned about the accuracy of where the throw needs to be taken compared to getting the ball and playing with 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 it again and, and this is something that's very difficult to um to adapt to as you kind of go up the levels of football in that uh, top end players they just want to play football 
They don't care if the ball, the only time they care if the ball was in the right space at a set piece, um, like give or take, like I'm talking, you know, like you obviously can't move it forward 30 yards, but give or take within general bounds of normality. The only time they care is if someone scores a goal from it. That's the only time they'll come back to you and go, that wasn't the right place. And you're like, yeah, okay, whatever. Or like, the, and, and again, the closer you get to the goal, the attacking goal, you have to get a bit more strict with where the ball placement has to be. Um, because players at a higher level, they don't like the constant stop and start. They like the game to just, they want to play as much as they can for 90 minutes. And, and so I reckon at the Premier League, you've got two things going on here. You've got the referee can't exactly tell them where to be. And equal to that, the assistants can't get too close, always too close to where the throw-in is either to tell them themselves simply because of how fast the game is. They have to stay pinned on the, on the second last defender as much as they can because otherwise they're going to miss a much more important decision. So in, in the middle part of the pitch, in that sense, the referee can't quite get over to it and the assistant can't quite close it enough. So then you're relying on the player to not be too dumb, um, which is never a good a good uh, thing to do. So um, I think that's what's going on there. Look, at grassroots for the referees that listen to this well we have quite a high level referees listening to this but you know on your games out there i would say as loud as you can tell one tell your assistants if they're like professional assistants um to tell to tell players where to have it and then in the third that you're in control of um just say i want it at the lamppost at the lamppost at the lamppost and as they're walking forward with the ball just keep saying it at the lamppost hey i've told you at the lamppost and then if they're 20 meters in front you just blow your whistle and go, take it back. Stop being ridiculous. And no one complains because everyone's heard you say it. And, and that's that. That's job done. Um, I think I think I, I think <clears throat> I resolve it um two ways, really. When I don't have a proper assistance, <clears throat> or if I, you know, so when I've got no assistance or club assistance, I I have I'm in the practice, rightly or wrongly, of pointing out where the, the throws to be taken from, no, you know, right. balls. Go off and retrieve it. I'll stick my arm out and say, you know, level with this or level with me or from here yep. and indicate them. And I find then that most people then will go to that spot, you know, yep. and they, they don't, they might then gain three yards or whatever, or three meters, but that they'll start their run up at the point which I've indicated to them. Yep. I also, if I've got assistance, I will, um, and it sounds like you do the same, I'll say to my assistants, I want you to be involved in making sure the throws have been taken from the right place. And so when I'm an assistant, I'm usually quite vocal about, you know, it's from here or this side of me or whatever and indicating. And again, I find that most players, generally speaking, I think most players, when they don't take it from the spot that they're meant to take from, I, I don't think most of them are doing it to gain an advantage. I think it's just, a, you know, I don't think it's like, oh, I can gain a few yards here and we can improve our position up the pitch. I don't think that happens football, a great deal. Football isn't much of a territorial game. It's yeah. generally when they've got no one to throw it to. Yeah. Um, is the problem. But yeah, no, exactly right. Like if I haven't got a... a uh, an advertising board to point to I'm like level with me level with me level with me level yeah. with me and then when I know they're level with me then I'll start my run in further into the field to where the landing zone is um, once I know they know it's level with me um, and I mean at the end of the day unless it's glaringly obvious you don't need to get them to pin back too much and stuff um, you need to get stricter as you go down the field and that's really kind of it I think I think that's fair yeah, I think that's fair. And so, um, Scott, as I said, well done. I think you're doing the right thing. Certainly, a great so question. far as we're concerned. Yeah. A really good Thanks, question. Scott. 
Very good practical question. Uh, third and final question we're going to deal with tonight um, has come in the form of a voice note. Awesome. Um, from a previous correspondent of the podcast, Chris Felton. So here is Chris's message. Hi, Ed and Adam. Thanks for the podcast. I think it's a great listen. Uh, I have a question for you, which was an example from a game that I had a few weeks ago at grassroots level. The red team are beating the blue team 2-0. It's about the 70th minute and the red team have a free kick. I position myself to be able to judge offside, as I quite often do uh, when you have club assistants. The club assistant for the blue team throughout this period had been exceptional very credible, giving offside, being in line with the last defense, second last defender frequently. The ball came through. In my opinion, one of three players was offside. I let it play through to see who collected the ball and the player who, in my opinion, was offside ended up scoring the goal. I blew for offside and disallowed the goal. The club assistant shouted across that he did not think that that player was offside. What should I have done in this instance? What I love about this question, Adam, is that I think I spoke about Chris before. So Chris um, sort of went up the the, the refereeing ladder um, to, I can't remember the exact level he ended up on, but, you know, got to a, a good level. Um, stopped refereeing for a bit um, and has gone back to do grassroots level. Um, and... What I think is really great and really shows you that grassroots refereeing, doesn't matter how good a referee you are, poses problems and issues. Doesn't matter how great you are, you know, we're all faced with the same difficulties. So that's why I particularly love this question. Um, for my part, the, the first thing I thought of when I listened to this message was some advice that, um, I don't know I keep saying it, but it's Ryan Atkins, somebody who's a, you know, a high-level referee that I refereed with at tournaments and had the opportunity to be on the line for him and observe him. So and we're friends with him. Yeah, he's we're a friend. friend with him. Yeah. And, yeah, he's a friend. And a lot of the stuff I've learned about refereeing has come from you know experiences at tournaments with him because I don't get the opportunity to referee or to be an assistant to people like that mm. at the level which I'm refereeing. And I remember him telling me at one tournament, um, and it rang, rang sort of loud when I heard this message, he says that give the players what they expect, right? Yeah. So here's a situation where Chris has described the assistant has been doing an exceptional job, not just sort of an average job, been an exceptional job. His flag has gone up, right? And one can assume because he's been doing a good job, he's been going with the assistant's decision every time, right? And so if you've been going with the decisions so far, what the players are going to expect at that point when that flag goes up is you're going to blow your whistle and you're going to give the offside. And so, I mean, I think that is really great advice because I think, you know, that would have been the thing I probably would have done. I know how frustrating it can be sometimes when you put yourself in a position so you can see the line and you think you've got it right and you think your assistant's got it wrong. And I know that the overwhelming urges to blow your whistle, I know best, let me just show you that I'm, you know, I'm the referee. I had a better view than you. But in that particular case, I think Ryan's words was like, to me, would have would have solved the situation. Yeah. It, it wouldn't have been aggro. Your, your, your situation is made even easier because it's a 2-0 advantage, the team that, you know, have just scored. Mm. Um, maybe it might be different considerations, I don't know, at different stages of the game, different scoreline. But 
so that that was my immediate reaction um what are your thoughts i i mean give what the game expects is always important but that's like players players coaches managers fans they hate surprises no one wants a surprise on the football field and I think by overruling the assistant in this situation, you're giving a surprise. And, and that is what Ryan was getting at. And, and that's that's the, the the kind of issue that can grow from there. Um, what I would say is, again, you know, I know I always say it, but it's such a key part of referee, and it really is, is, um, and I, I don't know, because I'm not sure in, in the voice note if... Um, well, Chris, he doesn't, he doesn't explain kind of what he was saying as, as the ball was coming in or whatever. But, you know, at that point, and you don't always know to do this, so it's quite high level and you wouldn't do it every time. But if I was looking down the line because I had a worry about the assistant giving me an offside, I'd probably be vocal in the, the whole time the ball is in the air. And I'd be going, yeah, yeah, play, 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 play. That's fine. Play, play, play. I'm here. I can see it. Play, play, play. Like, just... So, and even then the assistant's like, well, he's not going to give it if I give an offside because he's there and he's saying, he's telling them all to play. And you'd be amazed how many times, even with assistants at my level, when, you know, like we're commed up and, and I'm still shouting at them and I'm like, a, a foul will go in and they're like, there's a foul there. And I'll just go, play, play. And then I know, they know that one, I don't want the foul or two, I'm, um, I'm, I'm giving them the advantage and then that gives them a way out. But also it stops them stopping their movement like it's almost a cue for my assistant more so than the players so that they don't stop, put a flag up. And then I have a bit of carnage because I've shouted play and they've stopped. They're all listening to me and they all understand where I'm taking the game. Um, so, I mean, look, it's difficult. It also depends on your brief to the, to the assistant referees. Like if you said offsides are yours at all times, then offsides are theirs at all times. I, I personally, I would never give that to a, a non, uh, a, like a, a non-independent no. referee no, uh, assistant. I, I agree. I would always say that offsides is one of your biggest responsibilities today, but that doesn't mean that I'm always going to give it. When you put your flag up for offside, to me, that's your opinion. And then if my opinion agrees with your opinion, then I will, I will take it. But just because your flag's gone up doesn't mean an offside has occurred. Um, because you might not have seen the nuance in the middle of the pitch that I've seen. And, and what I've seen is more important. And I'm the person who's responsible for this game today. Um, I, would, I, 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 say, I say that to captains as well. Yeah, I, I do as well. Say, Look, I've told them that I'm, I'm expecting them to, to do offside decisions, but I've also explained to them that I may override them if I think I've got a better view. I think they've got it wrong and play has to continue until I stop. And so I tell them to communicate to that to their players as well. There's two, yeah, which they never do, but hey-ho. There's two no. points there. One, do you brief the assistants in, like your level, do you brief the assistants in front of the captains? No, because at the level I'm doing it, I'm doing it, it's club assistants. Yeah, but still. And normally it's like a last minute. They're trying to work out how many subs they've got, who, yep. who's going to, you know, who's yep. prepared to do it, who knows that the offside law. I mean, it's... It, it, so it it's doesn't... Yeah, last yeah, minute. No, I, I, I mean, I've, I've been like that. I've delayed kickoff for five, ten minutes until they found me an assistant at kickoff and the captains have stood there and I'm looking at the captains going, who's your assistant? And they're like, I don't know. I'm like, well, find him because I ain't starting the game till I've got him because I'm, I always made sure I briefed all four people at the same time. So I'll always brief both the captains and both the club assistants in the middle before the coin toss or before the whistle choice that I do because I like the to break the ice. Is, 
the problem with that is though is that it'll be substitutes in my in my yeah. games and, and then, so yeah the person you're briefing might be coming on after 15 uh, minutes and, that, and, and, that, and that's absolutely fine and then what happens is I'll go and do another brief to that person. But as long as the captains have specific, specifically heard what I say to the assistants at the start of the game, and then when the assistant changes, I'll stop play, I'll walk over to that assistant, and I'll give them the exact same brief. But the reason it's not... See, briefing the assistant isn't about briefing the assistant when you do it in the middle, all four at the same time. Briefing the assistant is about actually briefing the captain. Does that yeah, make sense? Although, like what you yeah, say but, to the assistant is important, but it's so the captain knows this is the standard. I, I'm I'm expecting this is the standard, the really low standard I'm expecting of the assistants, and that's what I expect. And then the other thing I say to captains as well is remember the flag doesn't denote offside, my whistle denotes offside. So if that flag goes up, you play to my whistle no matter what, and that's that. Um, but but you you still got the same problem when you've got the assistants coming into the middle with you is that as you observed a moment ago which is spot on we say to the the captains um let your teams know that please play to the whistle and they never but do. we both know that they walk away yeah. and don't talk to anybody so when you've got the assistants coming to the middle as well it's not really solving that problem but no 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 it, it? it it but it doesn't solve the fact they're not telling the other players but it what it does is the captain you're all on the same page and then when there's a flare up because of one of these incidents, you can take the captain away and go, mate, I told you. I said the whistle denotes offside. I said this to you and to the assistant. The flag doesn't denote offside. I'm telling you to play to the whistle the whole game. Why is it any different? You can't get annoyed at me. I told you 15 minutes ago what the situation is. That's it. And then and then you're out of all those problems. Like I genuinely, I, I know I know club assistants change and they rotate and it's a bit of a pain in the backside and stuff. But I genuinely found that briefing everyone at the same time was good it also puts your authority onto all four of those people a lot better because it shows you're not letting them because you could brief someone and then they could change and it'd be out of your knowledge before you even kicked off so i i my personal from experience would be do it all at the same time despite the fact that it means you might have to brief assistants three or four times in a game because they keep rotating and i think I I think we had, um, in fact, we did have a question from a listener uh, several episodes ago on a not dissimilar point. And do you, do you recall we talked about um, how you sell it? And yeah. we talked about whether or not you go and speak to the assistant. And I think what I would have done, I mean, I, I think that simply ignoring the assistant and giving the goal and it is going to be problematic because you, you obviously if you give them the goal, it's going to be controversial. I think it adds controversy if you then don't even speak to the assistant. Mm -hmm. And I think I said before that going to speak to the assistant can sometimes be helpful. And we 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 talked about this about how you, you said about how you would lead the discussion mm -hmm. so that you can get your point first of all. But I think in a case like this, you you, you simply don't know whether or not the assistant has misunderstood part of the law because mm -hmm. that they may have thought because one person was offside or they're not the person seeing the ball, they may have thought, oh, they're interfering with play. Hence they've given the offside, that they, they may have got the, it wrong in their, in their eyes as to who actually got the ball and who was offside. Also it, so, in that situation, quite often you can go up to them and be like, so what did you see? And they'll say something. You'll go like, well, that's just not what happened. And, and then, and then you can go and say to the captains or say to the rest of the players, he thought it was this guy and it was this guy. Yeah. Therefore, it's a goal. Yeah. See you later. And I've done that many times. Like, the often those club assistants, they don't know the laws well enough 
for them to be able to defend the decision they've given. And therefore you can take their naivety and their lack of education on that point, manipulate it, and then sell to everybody the outcome you yeah, you wanted. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, let, let me say what um because Chris then messaged in and sort of said what you know how the aftermath of that decision went. He right. said, Well, I stuck I stuck with my decision. Uh, I gave the offside. I didn't engage with the club assistant, uh, stating I was 100% confident my decision was correct. Yep. And as, as a consequence, the manager, five minutes later, shouted at the top of his voice, you're a total joke referee. Lovely. And he said, I subsequently cautioned the manager, which is the only time I've ever cautioned a manager at grassroots level. And he said, whilst the decision to caution the manager was correct, as his behaviour was disrespectful, I think if I'd gone to the assistant and had that discussion and then stuck with my decision, the manager probably wouldn't have behaved in that way. And it said also the last 20 minutes of the match became much harder to referee. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, as I say, I think we sort of talked before about um, selling the decision, communicating. Um, and But it's, I, I was just, you know, I know I've said it before, but I, it was just refreshing that, you know, Chris is a very, very good referee. Um, you know, I think he's excellent. And then it's just nice that he experienced the same issues that, you know, the rest of us grassroots referees do, no matter how good he is. So. And that goes, that just goes to show that the issues don't often come from the referee. It comes from yeah. the other 22 people. And a lot of that can be out of your control sometimes. And then it's, a, you know, and that last, we've all been in that situation and that last 20 minutes would have been aggro. Like it would have been a yeah. nightmare. The only other thing you could do maybe there is if you do go and talk to the assistant, and then, you know, if the coach is given a lot of dissent while you're doing all of that, just maybe it might be worth thinking about going over and just explaining the whole situation, like bringing the manager in on it might have got rid of that whole having to caution him issue and stuff. Um, but it might not have equally. And, and if you didn't feel like it needed it, then, then don't. Um, I don't. We don't need to get into the habit of having to explain everything to everybody. No. Um, so that's always a very contextualized decision. Yeah. But anyway, thanks to Chris for his message. Oh, and glad he's, message. glad he's thanks. enjoying the podcast. Voice notes. I love voice notes. It just adds another dimension. It's great. It is. It's much better to hear the listeners ask the questions themselves. It is. So I think that's the questions that we'd selected from the post bag for this week. So I think we ought to go on to law number 10. Can you believe which... we get all the way to law number 10 before like the scoring of a goal is actually what is mentioned? I'm actually like more surprised more. that we haven't we haven't gotten to anything really fundamentals. We haven't really gotten to it's not you know, fouls, offside, fouls, discipline. You know, yeah, I mean all the things which are the first things that people think about when they think of a referee yeah. and what their powers are. That's the first thing to think about. And instead, we've dealt with all covered the, the technical the, matters <laughs> and the fact the ball has to be spherical. <laughs> I know it's a it's a miracle people get as far as this blooming law. But anyway, it's a miracle um, people are still listening to us when I came up I with know, the idea well, for think, the podcast. I, to be honest, I think I, I, I think they're listening to us more now for our discussions about the post bag than the, I like I, I, because. I, 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 and probably my fun facts as well, obviously. Oh, oh, sorry, I can't believe I forgot about your fun facts. <laughs> I honestly think, um, I, I, I I like the fact that really it's turning into a coaching podcast rather than... A, yeah, me too. A, a, I, I think it's brilliant because I love helping people and I know you do too. So I think it's... So the more we get of that, the better, to be honest. And it's probably where it's going to go once we get through the laws, isn't it? And and helping, I mean, listen, I'm not... I, I keep saying this, I'm not speaking from perspective of, of excellence, but... You know, I think 
anybody can have some just you know input on these discussion points and it's quite interesting how often we are sort of of the same mind despite the fact we're coming from different ends of the sort of mm. um ability level but um yeah that's good i, I, I also think like if you disagree with anything we say as a listener I get like drop us messages, tell yeah, us like absolutely. you're so wrong with that. Like if you think briefing all four people at the start of a game is a terrible idea, tell me why. I want to like because I, I could learn from that as well. Like I'm not right about. I, I in fact I'm wrong about most things. Like yesterday in my game, I cocked up big time two moments, and and one of them really spoiled the end of the game, which is really annoying because it was a pretty decent game. You know, like I make mistakes. We all make mistakes and we can all learn together. And, you know, I'd love to get different opinions, see how other people are doing it because everything I say or Ed says isn't necessarily omnipotent. What it is, is about creating a discussion, having a melting pot and allowing you to develop your refereeing brain. I'm going to take that. I'm going to take this. I'm going to use that. I'm going to use this from the whole gamut of experience that hopefully we can develop on the podcast. No, it's really great to debate and discuss it, even if we're not giving you definitive answers. But yeah, Absolutely. there we go. Anyway, law number 10, determining the outcome of a match. Um, well, <laughs> Sorry, I'm just like, we, I'm like, we're going to get a letter from the FA, aren't we? They're going to be like, in a disciplinary <laughs> meeting, they quoted your podcast and we need to let you know that that is not the correct advice. I'm going to be like, oh, crap. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm afraid I don't care about the FA. Oh, you're so, careful. Let, Someone recently let, just got let, suspended by his county FA for social media yeah. use. Uh, yeah, I'm, right. I'm, I'm not bothered about that. So <laughs> part now, part one is goal scored. Um, and this is really straightforward. There's some diagrams if you want to look this up on the ISFAB uh, website. And, just and to it, show you it's very similar to... over the line. It's very similar to ball in and out of play, isn't it? <laughs> it is really. Um, and it, all it says is, as we know from recent experience, that a goal is scored when the whole of the ball passes over the goal line uh, between the goalposts and under the crossbar. And provided no offence has been committed by the team scoring the goal. And then two rather curious things. One is if the goalkeeper throws the ball directly into the opponent's goal, a like goal, goal kicker's kick. ward. Yep. And if a referee signals a goal before Wait. the ball has passed wholly over the goal line, players restart with the drop ball, which I found, I mean, again, this is another situation where they've, they've written a part of the law about something which... I mean, does that ever happen? What referee blows his whistle to award a goal? You know what? And then like, it hasn't crossed the line. May, well, maybe not a goal, right? But um, like I do that. I like I do sometimes rush a decision. Sometimes, like you think the ball's gone out of play and it's not, and you're like, oh, I ne-, like, and I'm like leading with my hand, and I'm like, yeah, and I say it, and the ball's still in play, and I'm like, oh crap. <laughs> so, and maybe not with a goal. Like you're gonna wait till it hits the back of the net. But one thing I would like. Did Peter Schmeichel ever throw the ball into... I mean, that's some throw, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, there's some keepers who got some fairly phenomenal throws. I don't know, not anymore. I mean, I remember Peter Schmeichel had an amazing throw. I used to love watching Peter Schmeichel. Well, the the Man City goalkeeper, I mean, he he distributes the ball by throwing it easily into the opposition half. Yeah, it's pretty impressive, isn't it? So if if you can throw it to somebody on the wing that's well into the opposition half... That ball can could make the goal if you wanted to. Right. I'm pretty sure. It yeah, could. okay. But I, I mean, I should, now you should be playing so, basketball. Um, what was the other thing I was to say about this? Yeah. Oh, we had a situation in the game yesterday, uh, whereas I saw a, quite a big water bottle, and it was like literally just behind the goal line. And um, I asked the goalkeeper to just move it back when I saw it, right? But it was after a, an attack in on his goal. And so I said to my assistants on the comms, I was like, guys, what would happen if the ball hit that water bottle? 
and didn't fully cross the goal line, like what would we have to do? And uh, and because I couldn't, I, in the heat of the day, I couldn't remember. Can you remember? Do you know what it'd be? Um, it's not a goal, is it? If it hits, if it hits the bottle and bounces back out before it crossed the line, it's not a goal. No, it wouldn't be. But I can't. But but what is it then? A well, indirect I think, free kick. I think it'd be an indirect free kick on the six-yard line. Yeah, um, but in a preseason situation like that, I, I said to them, I was like, on the comms, I was like, I'm just giving the freaking goal. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm not walking into that problem. <laughs> and the reality is, no no one in the, on the pitch is going to know the, Anything, the right no, exactly. answer. So but, no um, one's going to turn around to say, like, I might be wrong. 4.3. I haven't had a chance to look it up. But um, I would say as well, like, you have to, that's one thing you have to be careful of. Like, goalkeepers are always putting bottles on goal lines and stuff. Like, you have to clear them out as much as you can. It's something you really have to keep an eye on. Anyway, sorry, carry um, on. That's all right. Part two of, um, I mean, part two is just about how you work out the winning team. And then part three is a very, very long, complicated section on kicks from the penalty mark. So, look, part two. Um, well, this becomes a big surprise to our listeners, but the team that scores the greatest number of goals is the winner. <laughs> um, if both teams score no goals or an equal number of goals, the match is a draw. Um, well, I'd like to think that most of our listeners have got the... You know, Fundamentals. I know we're laughing, but if these aren't written in law, then it doesn't exist, right? That's like, it's similar to like yeah, the no, murder they... of someone, you get 25 years or whatever. Like, it still has to be written down somewhere. For yeah, of it course to be it has to be written down. Yeah. I, I, I agree, it has to be written down. And then it talks about what what can happen in, according to some competition rules in the event there has to be a result. Mm. Um, and so the various the only permitted procedures to determine the winning team in those circumstances, if the competition permits it, is the away goals rule. Although, um, yeah, I think I'm not sure it's used very much anymore. Two equal periods of extra time, not exceeding 15 minutes each. And then penalty kicks, and it says a combination of the above procedures may be used. It's interesting. Are, so, if you ever been in a competition where it says you have to ask both teams before the commencement of the game as to whether they want to go straight to penalties or to extra time, then penalties. Have you ever been in that situation? Got, no, but I've That's been in, in a ref, refereed in competitions where it's been it will be straight to pens. Yeah. No, um, there's so it's it was pre- the, predetermined. What was it? It was the FA Vars I was doing. I think it was the Vars. It was either the Vars or the trophy. What and they you have, have to decide at the end of the no, no, the, you have to decide before kickoff. Oh. So you decide before kickoff, and both teams have to agree whether you're going straight to pens or or extra time then pens. And if you get one that says one and one that says the other, you're like, hmm, what do I do? Like it's it's a like that it's so frustrating. Yeah, it's not fun. So part. Part three of the law, um, I have to say, when I read it, Adam, caused me... Um, Headaches. Yeah, a lot of confusion. And I have, I have to admit, I went back and I read it and reread it because there's one particular aspect that's that's got me completely vexed, but I think I've now got to the bottom of it now. But It's not clear in the laws. I found no, I've not explicitly said it, and that's the problem. No. If you just explicitly said it, it'd be so much easier to figure out. Well, I'll flag up the, the particular point in a minute that's troubled me. The, fir- the first part of the procedure, fairly straightforward. It says that unless there are other considerations such as the state of the ground or the safety involved, the referee tosses a coin to decide at which end the kicks will be taken. And this is something I didn't know about. I, I, I thought that the team that lost the toss for, for the ends then chose um, whether they want to go no, first so, or not. So you, the reason the referee is in charge of that decision now 
is because it has to be it has to be a neutral decision because like you, you yeah you go that ends heads that ends tails bang there we go because it takes away the manipulation of pressure from where fans are on the pitch yeah well that's i mean that's that's very mm. helpful to remind myself of that fact mm. um then this is I was surprised at this. This was something I didn't know about at all, I have to admit. If the end of the end of the game, before or during the um penalty kicks are taken, one team has a greater number of players than its opponents, um, it has to reduce the numbers to the same number as its opponents. Correct. Um, so, so I didn't know. If that you've at all. sent two players off in a game, then um so like one team's got nine, one team's got eleven. If you go to penalty kicks, you have to reduce the team that's got eleven down to nine. However, those players are still eligible. Eligible. If they needed to be, I know. Oh, what a great word. Eligible uh, means you can't read. You can't read it. Legible, illegible, elig- eligible. Shut up. That's it. <laughs> it's 2022, Ed. <laughs> um, uh, they can still be used if an injury is to occur. Oh, I don't know. I think. Yeah, I, well, I think you might but you re- about that. reduce we'll them. Yeah. So you just um, reduce. So you have to have the same because obviously penalty kicks is an even thing. You have to have even numbers of players going through the cycle of penalties. There are circumstances in which, in your example, those two excluded players would then become eligible, which we'll come to yes, correct. in a second. Now, this is the topic which has caused me the most angst. And I think I think I've got to the bottom of it because I was couldn't work out from reading the laws first few times I read it about whether or not a goalkeeper could be substituted or not during this process. During penalty kicks. During penalty kicks. Because my instinct, I don't know about you, is but at the end of a game. I keep everybody who's on the pitch at the end of the game on the pitch. Um, everybody else is kept off. Um, I think when we've spoken this before, you've talked about keeping like an, the pitch is like a sterile environment. Yeah, it should be sterile. And, and I've always thought that no one can come on the pitch and no one can come off the pitch once that has started. But my analysis of this law, having read it a few times, is that um, a goalkeeper who can't continue may be replaced by a player... Firstly, by when the players have been excluded for, in the situation just given, so two of the players yep. excluded because there was a nine on the other team, um, or if their team has not used its maximum permitted number of substitutes, mm-hmm. um, a name substitute can can come on, um, and obviously that the replaced keeper takes no further part, may not take a kick. Um, so you can substitute an injured yeah. goalkeeper during penalty kicks, but that's but it, the but, only situation. This is only if you have a substitute left. Not many teams go into penalty kicks with a substitute left, do they? No, that is true. Um, and hence why my experience has always been well, you've never had to worry about it, never had to worry about it before. But, um, it's all comes down to this bit about a a goalkeeper who's unable to continue, which that's where I find this of uncertainty because how do you determine a goalkeeper is unable to continue? Because there are teams, I know Chelsea have done it before, we expressly brought on, albeit within the time of the match. Extra time. So before yeah. the final whistle's yeah. gone. And that's fine. They swap, swap their specialist keeper over. But what's to stop a goalkeeper Fame. who ha- has an expert penalty keeper on the bench saying to you, ref, I've been labouring under my sore arm for the last 20 minutes but I'm unable to continue now the law seems to suggest that he could be replaced at that point I think all goalkeepers if they've played 120 minutes all goalkeepers are going to be in a better position to save penalties than the guy sat on the bench and I don't think a goalkeeper like you'll know if something's injured the goalkeeper during the game and if nothing's happened to that goalkeeper and suddenly comes up to you and is like oh I've hurt my arm you're going to be like how 
But at the end of the day, it's not your decision. If the goalkeeper thinks he's injured, you can't say he's not because then if he hurts himself, you're in trouble. So yeah, um, I mean, you have to trust the goalkeeper's knowledge. You have to, and you have to trust the physios, and you have to trust the team. I think that in all likelihood, teams will do what I've said before: is that they will sub the keeper on. They'll, you know, they'll know they're going to sub the keeper at the last minute and keep a substitution for that. So these sorts of things are unlikely to occur. But it's good to know that that's what the situation is. Should it occur, yeah. Um, and then as for, I'm, I'm going to gloss over pretty much the bit about what happens during the kicks because you know this is what we're all know about from having watched football about any of those people on the pitch can can take part yeah. um where where people you know the players should be in the center circle where the goalkeeper should stand um if the goalkeeper you know it talks about whether the goalkeeper commits defense you know causing the goal kick to be um the kick is retaken what happens about you know they're being cautioned I can't yeah. really think about I suppose that's unsporting conduct, maybe, but something like that might, but I can't quite see Being, why I had yeah. that. What happens um, if you send a player off during penalty kicks? You have to reduce both teams again, don't you? Yeah, you'd have to, yep. you'd have to reduce them down. And it also says right at the bottom here, um, uh, the referee must not abandon the match if a team is reduced to fewer than seven players during penalty yeah, no, kicks. Yeah, that's, that's also worth knowing. It's well. very important. That's over like to occur, but it's certainly worth knowing. Um, or you could have like a mass confrontation when a player comes back to the halfway line and then you've got to take action and you could end up sending, so you've already sent two players off, you might end up sending another two players off, but you carry on. And then also the other thing, if you've done that, you'll have to reduce the amount of penalty kicks that get taken. Like you have to take players away from the other team as well. Yeah. Because you always have um, to have the same number of kick takers. And then it goes on to the um, how both teams normally have five kicks. Alternate kicks are taken. Abba's gone. So that terrible situation we had, you know, is gone. Mm. And um, both teams take five kicks. But if one team's already effectively won the penalty shootout, either they scored the first three, the other team missed the first three, you don't finish it off. You just stop the penalty shootout at mm. that point. What I, what I um, would say is, like, the penalty kick law is really difficult. Like, it's really complex and it's very, like, we all think, oh, it's just, you know, five, whatever, whatever. What I would say is the best way to make penalty kicks very, very, very simple is to make sure it stays simple for you. So if you see a problem occurring, get ahead of it. Still be really vocal with players. Walk with players back and to if you think there might be a problem. Step in front of goalkeepers who are taunting players. Calm situations down. Be really proactive to avoid you having to walk into these really technical laws. Like it is on you as the referee to stop you having to figure out whether all of this crap has to apply or not. Because really, penalty kicks should just be five kicks, job done, see you later. Yeah, I mean... Um... So I would urge people to go and read this one because it's certainly if you if you're refereeing in competitions that have penalty shootouts as a way of determining the outcome of a game, these are the sorts of nightmare scenarios that you want to be alive to, and you probably should be refreshing your memory of them before you go to referee a cup <clears throat> competition that has this as yeah. an ultimate. And I mean, outcome. like we are talking about those rare situations, but that rare yeah. situation will happen in a final, and it's on you. So it is important that you know these. And I'll be honest, I'm not very diligent in kind of doing that. I mean, I always joke that I don't let any of my games go to penalties. 
<laughs> no one wants that to happen anyway to that's the bottom line oh, um yeah. and then then the last bit of the um it's all about substitution sendings off um people can still obviously be cautioned or sent off during the penalty shootout including the people off the pitch well that's what you'd expect anyway um and players other than the goalkeeper on over to continue may not be replaced and the referee must not abandon the match for teams reduced to fewer than seven players which is you know, probably something worth remembering as well. And the, I mean, if you, to be honest, if you find yourself in a situation where your match has gone to extra time, penalties, and there's now only six people left on the pitch, things things have gone fairly badly wrong and you've been extremely unlucky. So Yeah, um, exactly. Exactly right. Cool. Right. Ed, Ed's fun facts. Cue jingle. It's now time for Ed's fun Facts. So this week, uh, Adam, I've concentrated on two topics. Uh, one, because we've been talking about determining the outcome of a game. I thought I'd give you some interesting facts about goal line technology. Oh, okay. Um, Do I, I have to guess talk. any dates this week? There, there's some there's some dates oh, to be guessed God's in this sake. one. Um, and then the second topic I'm going to talk about my fun facts section. Today is going to be about the length of time that the football is in play during a football match because I found a really fascinating article. I think I know this. About, that talked about how long the ball was in play for, and the reason I, why I, I think I you mentioned it. Sorry, I don't mean to overtalk you, but you mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I, I talked about it when we were talking about I think IFAB. We talked about sort of IFAB's various decisions as to what, how they're trying to change the game. Yeah. Um, I think I gave. In fact, I did. I did talk about this statistic because when I talked about back passes and goalkeepers being able to pick them up and mm. how that was a time wasting and so they want to get rid of it to make football quicker. Uh, quicker. And also didn't so, it relate to all the extra added stoppage time that we were playing during the World Cup? Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. So I found a really fascinating article. Um so I'm just going to give you some facts about that. So uh goal line technology Adam first question is relatively easy. Do you remember when it was, it was introduced into football? And it, it started in the Premier League, so that'll help you a little bit. What, what year? Wasn't it after it was? Lampard's header was discounted in the World Cup? Um, so that must have been 2000 and... I think that might have been the 2008 World Cup against no. Germany. Was it you're 2002 right. you, World you, Cup? You, no, it was 2000, 2010. Six. Right, okay. Yeah, so it's the South Africa. It was South Africa. So we introduced it, it. So the Premier League introduced it in the back end, the 2010-2011. No, it wasn't quite that quick for reasons okay. become obvious in a moment. But it, it was in reaction to um, the 2010 World Cup game, as you rightly said, between England and Germany, which people re- probably recall was where Lampard's goal, well, was a goal disallowed because yeah. the ball was miles over the the goal line. But the whole of given. the ball was over the whole of the goal line. Yeah, by some margin, about three ball lengths over the goal line. <laughs> you're not um, bitter, Ed, it, you're not bitter. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't given. Um, Germany won 4-1. Um, but that caused FIFA to look at it again. The reason I say again was they had, in fact, um, investigated um, goal line technology before then. Set oh, right. Blatter had wanted um, to improve precision within the game. So they had... Uh, used microsip technology, which is one of the things which was used in the 2022 World Cup. Um, but ultimately, having tested it out, I think they tested out in sort of world youth football, the conclusion was it wasn't accurate enough. Um, right. So it only had like a 95% degree of accuracy. And uh, apparently, um, after the England-Germany game that we just talked about, 
Blatter said, no, we need to need to improve this. So it was looked at again. And that was when the Garland technology was uh, born. Um, in 2014, it came into use in the Premier League. Premier League was the first um, league in the world to use it. And the reason why it's not used in all the worlds and at all levels is purely financial. Um, yeah, it would be, yeah. It costs so, uh, about... Sorry, I was going to say a big argument against it was the fact that it will create disparity between the game at the yeah. top level and the game at the bottom level. And FIFA are all about making sure the game is the same for everybody, which is a misnomer yeah. anyway, because you don't play in stadiums. Anyway, no, exactly. Week, so, yeah, anyway, sorry. Um, but yeah, so no, it, it, it costs... The, the last figure I saw for how much it costs is uh, £250,000 to, to install it. And is and that then... on the stadium? Is that on the club that they have to install it? No, so the club the, the club pay for it, right? Um, and FIFA aren't stupid. They they charge sort of fifteen thousand pound a year to get their stamp of approval for them to come along, calibrate, and say it's accurate, and you have our seal of approval. So hence, I can see that it's not something which um, many clubs can afford to use. Yes. Um, and in fact, I think it's, it's not even in use in all the. It's it's in use in the Premiership in England. The championship, Scottish Prem now have it. But interestingly, it's not in use in La Liga. Doesn't have it. Doesn't have right. online technology. Interesting. Um, but um very quickly, a few interesting facts about it. It's the, the company that runs most of the goal line technology in the UK, virtually all the stadiums save three or four, is by the company which people will be familiar from from those who people who watch tennis. So Hawkeye. Hawkeye yeah. and cricket. company. Yeah. Did you know that Hawkeye was owned by Sony? Did you know no, that? I didn't. They didn't. They probably bought them out. And um, the way it operates is they install 14 cameras, so seven at each end, at various positions, usually sort of along the stadium um, roof or underneath the stadium roof. And they're high-speed cameras, and the purpose of them is to, working together, create a 3D animation of the ball's movements and communicate the outcome to a referee within one second. And it, he gets a buzz on his watch saying whether it's a goal or not. He gets a buzz on his watch saying goal, yeah. which is very good. And do you know who was the first player in the Premiership to score a goal that was given by goal line technology? Oh, give me like, give me a club at least. Man City. So it'll be 2014. Sergio Aguero. No, Eden Dzeko was the person oh, who scored the, the first one. But, I don't think uh, I'd have got Eden Dzeko. He was a good player. I liked Eden. He was a good player. He's one of those um, guys you always get on FIFA or like championship manager. So topic number two came about because I retweeted, I think, from our account mm. today in England, how Bundesliga ref had um, come up with some, a lot of media attention because he'd come up with four ways in which he thought the game could be improved. One of which was to do something about um, the length of matches and how we measure football matches because as we've talked about before um matches are 90 minutes long but they're not 90 minutes of the ball in play and um again it was come as no surprise that um and i think i've talked about this before ifab considered i think a few years ago about whether or not they would trial um how they could possibly time the game differently by sort of like an american style basketball situation of having a a clock stopping and starting, reducing a game length down to 60 minutes. And although it was sort of looked at, it was never trialed and kind of has been shelved. Mm-hmm. Um, but the topic has 
obviously come up a lot again recently, particularly in light of what happened um, in the World Cup. But um, anyway, so the first question I was going to ask you, Adam, is this, in this last season in the Premier League, um, what was the average ball in playtime in matches in, la- in last season's Premier League? 63 and a quarter minutes. Well, I think, I think you're going to be quite surprised by these figures. I certainly was. The average in playtime was 55 minutes. And no. That was the average for the Premier League uh, last year. That's that much. That's crazy. That was the lowest it had been in a decade. Right. So looking at the stats from 2006 to 2007, in 2006, it was only 53 minutes and 28 seconds. It then crept up to about 56 minutes um, and then it sort of come come down again. And then, yeah, so this last season was the lowest one for... You know, I years. sort of, I do sort of get that because when you look at sports like basketball, I know it's a smaller court than that, but they only play for an hour. Like playing and play, like sprinting, like players have to for ninety minutes, isn't easy. Like it is, like it is hard, hard work. And I've always, it's always been my suspicion. No one's ever actually, other than the referee, really, is really having to try and run for really ninety minutes. Um, yeah. I like I've always thought that and I didn't realize it was that low but I suppose it probably I wonder if that correlates as well to I wonder if last season we had the most amount of goals ever scored in the Premier League. I don't know about that stat but what what it, the article I read did talk about though which I thought was was quite interesting and or isn't really surprising but um they then looked at which teams had what was the average length of um the balls in play for each team in the prem right? Yeah. Um, now, common sense is going to tell you that the best teams play the most football. No, I bet the I bet the best teams play the least amount of football. I bet they control the clock a lot better. Well, you may be wrong about that. Oh, it's okay. the teams that it's the teams that struggle that um, don't like the, the ball to be in play. Yeah, exactly. Right, okay, well, perhaps they so, perhaps they struggle less if they played more football. They'd have more opportunity to score goals. So now I've told you how it's gonna how this is gonna work in terms of rankings. Right. Have a have a stab at which which teams um, had the most average minutes of football played in their games last season, Adam. Man City. Number one. Chelsea. Number four. Man United. Number five. Liverpool. Number three. Arsenal. Uh, Arsenal mid table. Really. Yeah, Arsenal. Oh, don't tell Arsenal Wenger that. He'll, he'll have a kitten. Tenth. Wow. Um, and so at the bottom of the table. I bet a West Ham, like 18th. I feel like this is a stat West Ham would not West, be high West Ham, West Ham are 7th. Right, okay. So at the um, bottom would be like Norwich, Brentford. Well, the, Norwich is the anomaly. Norwich, oh, really? Norwich, the Arsenal remarks is the anomaly. They were, I think, 11th. Okay, um, but they got relegated, the team, didn't they? Yeah, exactly. So that's that's the anomaly because the other teams at the bottom, bottom of Villa, then it yeah. was Southampton, then it was Burnley, then it was Leeds. Then it was Who, who's third? I didn't get third. Who's third? You didn't get third. No, second was Spurs. Oh, of course, is, I always forget about get. Spurs. Yeah. And so, just to give you the range, um, average length of time the balls in play in a Man City game in last season, seventy-three minutes. No. 
Um, <laughs> I thought I got it right then. The, the well, the, I told you the average last season was 55 minutes. Yeah, I know, but they're like top of the league. All right, let me think about it again. 62 minutes. Yeah, very close. 60 minutes good. and 53 seconds okay. for Man City. So they play for an hour. Right. But the, the, they were they were a good three minutes ahead of second place Spurs. Wow. And by contrast, so Man City on 60. Yeah. Um, Villa at the bottom, what do you think their one was? 51? 52. 52. Oh, 23 I'm quite proud of those guesses. And then, um, very quickly, just to give by way of example, just to show you how little football is played in some games in the Premiership last season. Uh, the how, how long did the ball was in play for the shortest period in a Premier League game last season? What do you mean? So, we've talked about the average of 55. There was a yeah. game last season... Which had the what was the lowest? Right. How many minutes in of one that off, game? In a one-off game, was the ball in, in play a one-off? Yeah. Forty-three minutes. Forty-one minutes and thirty. They didn't even play forty-five minutes of football. Didn't even play a half of football. Oh, that was that's West Ham. Crazy. There's a West surprise. Ham versus Brentford. What was the score? Uh, I don't know There's the answer to that. Oh, okay. But it's but it's oh, interesting, interesting. because you, you you look at the clubs that are involved in all these games: West Ham, Brentford, Villa, Newcastle. Yep. Yep. Watford, Southampton, Everton, Burnley. I mean, it's all the teams at the bottom were isn't playing. That interesting. Mad, isn't it? And taking into account, so that was last season, shortest game, shortest time the ball was in play since the records began for 20, 2006. 33 minutes. 39 minutes. Was that a Stoke game? It was a Stoke game. How did I know that? So did Pulis. And Pulis. Pulis Features in um, the top thirty games of this stat. He, he, no, he, he has four of the shortest yeah. recorded games. In, that doesn't in, surprise me. That's more like um, a game of rugby, isn't it? Really. And I, I hope I'm not boring people because I, I found this really fascinating. That is really so interesting. That just just two more categories to ask you about. One is so we've talked about the shortest game since records began. Yeah. Um, what do you reckon is the highest bad tie the ball's been in play for a Premier League fixture since 2006? Mm, low 70s, 71 minutes, 72 minutes. Yeah, well, almost spot on. 71 minutes and 51 seconds. Perfect. Um, and interestingly, between... I actually got one right. Wait, can we take a moment? I got one right. <laughs> no, that's, that's good. Um, between And that's a game between Man United and Fulham, interestingly. Okay. That is interesting. Um, but yes, that's pretty impressive. And uh, final category of things. So, um, bearing in mind these competitions, which ones do you, how do you think you're going to rank them in terms of the average amount of time the ball is in play? Okay. For Champions League, Premier League, uh, Ligue 1 in France, Bundesliga, Syria in Italy, and La Liga. La so Liga will be top. La Liga's top. Okay, and what's what would you say is bottom? Uh Ligue 1, the French league. No, so you're wrong on both oh, counts, thanks. and you're very wrong. <laughs> you're very wrong when it comes to your La Liga suggestion. Sometimes because... I wonder what's the point. <laughs> well, because it provides us the comedy, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> what a very stupid question. So um the Champions League comes. I'll give you the quick, I'll give the ranking run there very quickly. Champions, Champions League, league is top, yeah. Top. Averaging 56 minutes and 54 seconds 
Um, so that average, I suppose the Champions League is quite a big competition, though. Yeah. Um, followed by the Premier League, 55 minutes. League okay. 1. Um, Bundesliga, Syria, and the bottom of the table is La Liga. Is, is, um, La Liga. 53 minutes, 21 seconds. Wow. Um, with the ball in play for 54.6% of the match. Um, you know. And... And isn't it curious that in La Liga, they have, of those six or seven um, championships I've just talked to you about, they come bottom in terms of the uh, amount of time the ball's in play, but have the highest average game time. Wow. 97 minutes and wow. 43 seconds. That's not a surprise, because the rest probably stop in the watch a lot more. So Because the ball's not in play. A lot of time wasting going on, it would have been yeah. in yes. La Liga. Um, would can you share that article on our Facebook page so people can? I certainly it? can because it is it's really, really interesting. Article. Yeah, I'd, that's I'd a love, great I'd article. I'd love to say I, I dug those facts out from various sources, but I found a BBC article, BBC online article about it, which I'll retweet because it's honestly I, I loved it. It was such fun. That is that, that is really interesting. Um, that was a good fun facts. Thank you, Edward. You're welcome. I feel next week, Adam. Law next number week. eleven is offside. It's actually a proper law. law. Yes, can't wait. God, Something I substantive. I better read it. <laughs> well, right. why, why break with tradition? Well, exactly. You have an awesome <laughs> week, won't you, my friend? Have you got any I games to speak? No, no, no. no. Cool. Work is dominating life at the moment. So oh. work and I'm trying to get fit. So lots of, Good. Lots of sport, lots of work. Good. Yeah. Well, I'll try and write that blog for you as well. Excellent. See you soon, Lovely my friend. Lovely talking to you. Always a pleasure. Ciao, ciao. Take care. Bye. Au revoir. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Red or Yellow. You're clearly a very fit listener. May I gently remind you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Tell all your friends. And don't forget to please share it with any colleagues or refereeing groups that you may have. Good luck on the fields out there this week. And if you have any questions, please send them in to us. Voice notes can be sent to redoryellowpod at gmail.com or you can contact us on social media. It's at Red or Yellow Pod. Have the most wonderful day. Thank you so much for listening. Ciao, ciao.